Welcome to episode 62 of the Rich Roll Podcast with David Simon. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey people, welcome to the show. My name is Rich Roll. This is the Rich Roll Podcast. Thanks for dropping by. What do we do here each week? I bring to you the best and the brightest, the most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds in health, wellness, fitness, nutrition, and athletics uh, with one goal in mind, to help you unlock and unleash your best, most authentic self. Today on the show... uh, my guest uh, certainly fits the definition of paradigm busting. Uh, he is an author and a lawyer. I think he might be the first lawyer that I've had on the show, other than myself. Uh, his name is David Simon. He's got a new book out. It's called Meetonomics. And essentially what this book does is a deep dive into the bizarre economics of the meat and dairy industry. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, he breaks it down in terms of economics, uh, the money that is spent um, and how it's spent to market and distribute these products to get them from the farms, particularly the factory farms, to your plate, the marketing that is entailed in doing so, and how the whole farm subsidies thing comes into play to keep prices cheap, and how, in fact, those prices are actually, uh, those, those added costs are passed on to us. Um, it's pretty interesting, and uh, I think that uh, you will be, um, your eyes will be opened by this discussion. So whether you're a plant-based person, a paleo person, maybe you're a McDonald's person, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but I think it's all incumbent upon us to be educated about how our food system works, how food arrives on our plate, what is entailed in that process. And what David does is he really pulls the covers on the business. We get a look at the lobbying efforts, the marketing companies, um, the USDA, and how all these sort of power players conspire to... um, convince us that we should continue to buy products that arguably are not in our best interest at price points that seem cheap and yet are passed off to us in other ways. So anyway, um, I'll let David do the talking. Uh, If you're in the United States, happy Thanksgiving. Hope everybody's getting ready for a healthy uh, a healthy version of Thanksgiving. And if you're looking for some uh, tasty, delicious recipes so that you can uh, feel good after your Thanksgiving meal, go to richroll.com. Julie and I put together a series up there. I think there's seven, six or seven recipes up there that you can check out. Um, our kids love them. They're easy to make. They're delicious. They're healthy versions of what you would typically expect to eat on Thanksgiving. And uh, we love them. We're going to make them ourselves. So I just wanted to alert you to that if you haven't already visited. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential, deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. 
but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense, and you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down, and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. So that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. All right, so let's just get right into it. Um, David Simon, Medianomics, author, lawyer, activist, advocate for sustainable consumption. Let him blow your mind. All right. Enjoy. Thanks for coming to the garage studio. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to uh, meet you. We tried to hook this up quite a while ago. We had some scheduling stuff to try to make it happen, but I'm really glad to have you here today. I think your message is really powerful and, uh, and really important, and I'm glad to be able to uh, put a microphone in front of you and 
hopefully reach a, reach some people with it, you know, some more people with it. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me, um, tell me what, you know, before we get into like your background and all of that, like let's just get it out up front. Like what is Metanomics all about? Metanomics is really about a, a, a new look at the way that meat and dairy producers in this country have managed to um, put together a program that allows them to control consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and I argue in the book that, that producers, meat and dairy producers, have largely diminished the ability of consumers to make informed and independent decisions about what to eat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so give me an example of what that might be. So meat and dairy producers uh, team up with the USDA and they put together these programs called checkoff programs, just like when you check a box. And most people have never heard of these. I, I've talked in many cities and I ask people to raise their hands if they've heard of them and no one's ever heard of them. And yet these programs spend about $550 million a year to bombard consumers with messages like milk, it does a body good, beef, it's what's for dinner, um, pork, the other white meat. Mm-hmm. We've all seen those messages or heard them or they've been on the internet or the radio or TV. They're some of the most effective marketing campaigns of all time. That's right. They, are, they comprise the fabric of our life. You that, know? Is, that is right. And, and we can measure their effectiveness because the checkoff programs themselves publish the data that shows their return on investment. Based on the, 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 the data that they publish, there's about an eight-to-one average return on investment. So for each dollar that those programs spend, they see about $8 in increased sales. So for that $550 million, there's about $4.6 billion in extra sales that results. So that's one of the ways that uh, producers are controlling our behavior. Now, we don't even think about that. People go into the grocery store at 5 o'clock to shop for dinner and... What's going through their head is beef. It's what's for dinner. Beef. Mm-hmm. It's what's for dinner. And you yeah. don't even know why mm-hmm. that's the case. It's because you've right. been told that a thousand times in a thousand different ways. More than a thousand times. I mean, I've I've told this story before, but um, <clears throat> I was in a high school gymnasium recently, public high school, and there's got milk banners hanging in the gym. You know, at a public institution, and it's pictures of young strapping. You know. High school athletes at the bench press or, you know, shooting a jump shot. I can't even remember exactly what the images were, but, you know, with the milk mustache and, you know, so, so even if you're not looking at it, it's just subliminally, it's getting its way into your unconscious mind and it's just, it just sits there until you sort of behave without even knowing it when you're in the grocery store instinctually. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that example you give of the schools is great because um, the, the milk checkoff program spend over $50 million each year selling milk to school children. Right, and I think it, it, it sort of begs the question of the nexus between the USDA and what it's real, in, in, you know, and the consumer, the, you know, consumer interest and government interest. So I think that there's this sort of public conventional wisdom that the USDA is out there looking out for our interest and, you know, why don't you, if you could elaborate a little bit more on what the USDA's function is. Yeah, well, the USDA has a complicated, um, really, it's a two-part function, and its, and its mission is often divergent. Uh, on the one hand, the USDA is charged with promoting meat and dairy. It literally has clients. Uh, the industry is its client uh, base. And mm-hmm. so when, when it acts through the checkoff programs to sell more meat and dairy, it's literally executing one of its missions. But its other mission 
is to team up with the Department of Health and Human Services and provide dietary guidelines to Americans. Uh, and in fact, uh, those two federal agencies, uh, the USDA and HHS, together publish the dietary guidelines for Americans, which are the most influential set of nutritional uh, recommendations that we have in this country. And they guide all sorts of things, school lunch programs and programs for the elderly. Mm-hmm. And that's what we base our own, most of our own nutritional um, um, programs on. I mean, right. that's, that's, that's where we get the idea that you need this much protein, you need this much calcium. So these two goals, on the one hand, pushing meat and dairy, on the other hand, telling people what's good for them, often come into conflict. And we see many examples of that at the USDA. It, it almost seems, I mean, you're a lawyer, like it almost seems, I mean, it's more than a conflict of interest. I mean, is there a constitutional argument here? Well, that's a very good question. A lot of people have brought lawsuits against the USDA, arguing that it's simply not doing its job. Um, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, right. or PCRM, has one pending today. That was that's just on the food pyramid, or the right, right, yeah. right. They, and the argument is that that pyramid and the associated guidelines are misleading. Um, right. Legislators r- routinely bring this up and say we should bifurcate these duties. The USDA should not have both of these duties, but you know, they're routinely overruled. Mm-hmm. The, the animal food lobby finds it very important for the, for the same agency that is, that is promoting meat and dairy to make nutritional recommendations because it, it, it ensures that, that Americans will continue to be told they need to eat, uh, meat and drink milk. Well, of course. Right. Yeah. But it seems like there's, you know, who's the, you know, other than organizations like PCRM, who are the consumer watchdogs that are, you know, they, you know, what are the checks and balances on organizations like the USDA? There really aren't, right? I there mean, really aren't. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's that's the that's the situation. <laughs> this is metonomics, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's really the that's really the unfortunate circumstance for consumers is that this our watchdog agency is is routinely challenged to give us the kind of advice that it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And you make a really compelling argument in the book um, about this, this idea of internalized costs and externalized costs in terms of the built in, you know, the true expense of what it takes to harvest and produce milk and dairy products and put them on your plate. Because we all know that you can go to McDonald's or Taco Bell, and it's essentially the same price it was when we were kids, you know, and it's flabbergasting, which then sort of perpetuates this socioeconomic crisis when it comes to dietary habits. If you're, you know, if you're underprivileged, it's hard to um, argue with somebody who's a head of a household who can go to Taco Bell and, you know, feed their family for $10, and you're trying to tell them to go to Whole Foods. So, what I, what I like is how you went into the real economics behind this and what's really going on. Yeah, and, and just to flesh that out a little bit for, for people who may not under, be familiar with the, with the concept of internal and externalized costs, if I, if I take my garbage to the front of my driveway and leave it there for the garbage service to pick up and I pay them to pick it up, I internalize my garbage collection costs. But if I take my garbage, put it in my trunk, drive over to a park at midnight and dump it there, I've externalized my garbage costs. Mm-hmm. 
And, and in other words, the taxpayers pay for that. Taxpayers have to pay to pick up my garbage. Right. And the point that I make in the book is that, metaphorically speaking, animal food producers are dumping their garbage in our parks at midnight because they're offloading or externalizing the vast majority of their production costs onto the rest of us. Uh-huh. And so explain how that works. I mean, this is, this is sort of uh, you know, an endemic kind of entrenched system that starts with farm subsidies, correct? Yeah, farm subsidies represent a big component of that. They're, I add them up to, to about $38 billion. Different people have done the math differently. Mm-hmm. That's probably one of the larger numbers. Uh, I include in my calculation things like subsidies to feed crops. Those aren't always included in that calculation. But because in this country, more than half of the feed crops that we raise go, more than, more than half of the soy and corn that we raise in this country ends up feeding um, animals who are raised as livestock, right. we really have to include those, those subsidy figures. So that's, that's $38 billion. That's a big number. That's, that number is more than half of what all states spent on unemployment benefits to unemployed workers last year. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Put that in perspective. Yeah. yeah, and I think you, you cited a statistic, um, <clears throat> the price of a pound of chicken in 1935 versus what it is today. Yeah. So what was that again? I think it was adjusted. It was on an inflation adjusted basis. Chicken has come down almost 80% in the last uh, 75 years. Right. So it was like, I think the number you had was like $5 and change or something like that. If you adjusted for inflation in 1935 and now it's like a dollar 34. Right. And that is, that is largely the effect of, of chicken producers externalizing many of their costs. They, they've also figured out ways to make chickens grow bigger and grow faster, and that helps a lot. But all of those, the, what, what appear to be improvements in efficiency, always drive externalized costs. So, for example, uh, chickens get bigger faster because they're dosed with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Those antibiotics uh, damage our health and, and healthcare costs result. Those antibiotics end up in our rivers and streams because um, we eliminate them after we eat them. Uh, the chickens eliminate them after they eat them or they're dosed with them. And they, those, those chemicals damage ecosystems. So there are all sorts of costs associated with what we just normally think of as, hey, that's great, it's efficient. Right. So in terms of externalized costs, I can, I can spend the rest of my life eating a vegan diet, but I'm, I'm, by paying taxes, I am participating in this system because I'm contributing to the farm subsidies. And if my health care costs go up and I pay that, then I'm subsidizing that as well. So I'm taking on, no matter what my personal habits are, my choices are, I'm still bearing these costs. Yeah, right? it's, it's really unfortunate. Even if, even if you don't ever touch another animal food product again in your life, you will be continuing to spend money uh, to support those who do. Mm-hmm. And so is there, you know, in your research, um, when you look at uh, dairy farming, you look at, beef, you look at chicken, and then you look at the fish industry. I mean, is there any one of these that stands out as any worse than the other, or are they all kind of doing the same thing? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it, they, they have, uh, there are higher and lower costs associated with them according to different attributes associated with them. So, for example, um, the, the metrics for measuring cruelty, I, incru- I include a cruelty figure in, mm-hmm. in the book, um, that's determined based on what would an average person be willing to pay to end cruel pa- practices in a particular industry. Those costs tend to be higher in the um, 
pig and chicken farming industries than in the uh, fish and um, cattle farming industries. Right. People don't care about the fish as much. Yeah, that, that tends to be the case. <laughs> so, so there are some minor there are some minor differences like that. But for the most part, all all of these industries today resort to, to factory methods, including fishing. More than half the fish that we eat in this country today is farmed, which means it's basically raised on a factory farm for fish. Mm-hmm. And all of those all of those factory farms share that 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 common theme that they externalize uh, the vast majority of their costs and environmental damage and subsidies. And- right. Yeah. You make a very interesting argument, um, on the harvesting of fish. And, you know, I know a lot of people <clears throat> who they're very interested in eating a plant-based diet and maybe for the most part, you know, they're 80, 90% plant-based, but they say, they'll say to me, yeah, but I just, you know, I got to have that piece of salmon every once in a while. I feel like I need it you know, or, you know, I got to get my omega-3s or what have you. And you had some interesting ideas about that, too. Yeah, unfortunately, that I hear that a lot, too. And, and what, what we find in, in the two ways of producing fish, either capturing it in the wild or farming it, are the, is that they both damage the environment in different ways. Fish, fishing commercial fishing, which is the predominant method of capturing fish today, has already decimated a third of the planet's fish stock, mm. uh, or what, what, what are referred to as fisheries. And some scientists expect that by the middle of the century, uh, all of the commercially fished species that are out there today will be gone as a result of commercial uh, fishing operations. And fish farming, for its part, while it's often touted as sort of the future of food production, has all sorts of problems of its own. It, it uh, causes um, eutrophication, which is a process which, which results from um, fish feces literally uh, concentrating in the water and causing algal blooms and hypoxic zones. Uh-huh. Um, fish are dosed with chemicals too, just like land animals, to prevent uh, the spread of disease. So, they get, so there's antibiotics in the water that damages local ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So. Unfortunately, they both they both have uh, they both have problems, and then there are all sorts of places to get omega threes that don't involve fish, like flax and walnuts. Right, of course. Yeah. But I think you had said even that that fish that are factory farmed really actually don't have very much, if any, omega threes in them. So there's a lot of misinformation revolving around that. That's right, because omega threes come from vegetation that grows in a marine environment, like seaweed and kelp. And and fish in factory farms are often fed things like corn and soy, and uh, mm-hmm. they just corn and soy don't have omega threes in appreciable <laughs> quantity, they're so they're not going to get the same it. thing that they're feeding the cows. Yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah. Uh huh. <clears throat> what is this the state of of uh, legislation in terms of you know overfishing our our oceans? I mean, is that is there anything to keep that in balance or? The problem is it's an international issue, and mm-hmm. there's just no there's no international consensus on how to approach it the u.s subsidizing uh subsidizes fishing pretty heavily but we are by far uh not the most aggressive subsidizer of of fishing um china japan and russia uh, subsidize fishing much more aggressively than we do and and when you've got Mm -hmm. countries around the world spending over 50 billion dollars to subsidize a practice that that otherwise would be money losing it's it's very hard to to control what 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 amounts to a continued sort of decimation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think that uh, it's become very um, popular lately 
which in some ways is a really good thing, to you know this priority on eating locally, locavores, um, whether it's people that are eating on a paleo diet who are interested in getting their beef grass-fed, or you know the same thing with the fish that they're eating, uh, going to the farmer's market, making sure that you know the, the sort of carbon footprint of the food that they're purchasing comes from nearby to reduce that. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, you know, I, from your book, there's, there's a lot to be said about some sort of misinformation in this world as well, right? Yeah, and while I don't want to discourage people from the idea of, of consuming products that are, that are raised locally, because I do think it's a good idea, I do point out in the book that it is very easy to overlook the, the much more important components of food production, which tend to be in um, production, processing, and preparation, which together account for like 70% of food's carbon footprint, and a focus on transportation, which only accounts for 11%. Mm. So there are, there are all sorts of examples that, that show that when you add in the, the, the bigger carbon footprint items, it, it's often more environmentally friendly to import food from from vast distances, because the the I mean, there's the focus really is usually on transportation, right? If it comes from far away, it must cost a lot and have a huge carbon footprint. That's right. But the bigger you're saying, the bigger carbon outlay is what the the, the harvesting itself or the the process of producing it. Which, uh, for example, in New Zealand, where sheep are raised uh, often using envir- renewable energy like uh, geothermal and solar and wind powered technologies, uh, and they're they're not raised in uh, factory farming conditions the way they might be in England. The the math works out to be that it's more environmentally friendly for the British to import sheep from New Zealand because of the way that they're raised in New Zealand, which is, which is environmentally friendly, than to eat their own the sheep, are which are raised down right, the right down the street in, in a factory farm. Huh, amazing. So this is, this is like sort of painting a bleak picture here, right? I mean, what are we to, what are we to do? Well, it's, it's painting a picture that, that is, that is um, trying to address some of the arguments that people throw out to say that, well, if, if you don't think meat can be raised sustainably, try this, try local, try organic. And I think what, I, what I've done in the book is to show that, that there really is a, a fundamental sustainability problem with, with trying, to cons- trying to provide meat to meet our current level of consumption uh, in this country. Mm-hmm. And because the rest of the world is, is trying to catch up with us, soon we'll be having this problem on a worldwide basis. And yeah, there are some things we can do. Such as? Well, uh, we can eat less. People can eat less meat and dairy, or they can mm-hmm. decide to give them up completely. And that's, uh, as uh, somebody, one person on a plant-based diet to another, I'm, uh, that's certainly something that, that I'm sure you can mm-hmm. relate to. And, uh, and obviously, there are all sorts of benefits that, that are associated with that. Health benefits, environmental benefits, um, ethical benefits to the animals. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's an interesting time because there is this movement, particularly among young people that are really interested in permaculture. They are interested in the environment in a way that maybe our generation was less interested until maybe now. Um, and this idea of, you know, grass fed and all this kind of thing that's very much of the moment. Um, and I think that that is obviously a move in the right direction. But I think when we're looking at the, the population of the planet, that it would be impossible to 
feed the planet the way that we're feeding them now, the extent of meat and dairy products, and do it in any kind of sustainable fashion. Like there just isn't room for that, right? I mean, exactly. It if if the rest of the world wanted to eat uh, the same lo- the same amount of meat that we consume per capita in this country, we would be sh- we would need another two thirds the the mass of the planet just to provide the space to to raise the feed and and graze the livestock mm-hmm. uh, to produce those animals. So we just we don't have it. It's it, it's a it's a it's an unsustainable diet. Right. And we've arrived at this place where we're eating. I think your the number you cited was in was it 1935 when the average American we would eat 100 pounds of meat or meat yep. and dairy a year. 100 pounds of meat. Yeah. 100 pounds of meat. And now in 2011, it's 200 pounds. That's right. Right. Yeah. And so when you when you sort of look back at like if you're in archaeologist and you're studying this behavior pattern is it just the sort of advent of farm subsidies and the usda and these lobbying efforts that that are responsible for this or you know what are the what was the impetus for this increase i i believe and i argue in the book that that the the most important reason why american consumers have doubled our consumption in the last 75 years is that prices have come down you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as we discussed, the price of chicken has come down something like 78%. Ham is down 50%. Steak is down 25%. And, and the, the, the law of demand says as prices come down, consumption goes up. And mm-hmm. I really believe that that has been the effect of those prices coming down. That, and to go, to, to go back to an earlier theme, that is one of the ways that producers manipulate us. By keeping prices artificially low, they get us to buy a lot more of these goods than we would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, the thing that really gets me is the sort of underhanded nature of the marketing aspect of it that kind of eludes us. You know, we just sort of, you know, we don't really realize what's going on right underneath our feet and, and, and the extent to which we're being, you know, I don't know, I don't know if we're being lied to, but we're certainly being pushed or, or maybe manipulated. Yeah, I, I, sometimes you're being lied to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, what would be an example of that? I mean, in your research, um, here's an example. in In 2009, we had an epidemic of swine flu in this country, and uh, it started in April and ended up killing 12,000 people and hospitalized a lot more than that. the The pork industry was not happy that it was being called swine flu, and they literally leaned on the USDA to change the name mm-hmm. and. The federal government has, has the authority to change the name of a disease. So what happened was Tom Vilsack, the secretary of the USDA, appointed by Obama, uh, called a press conference uh, in the spring of 2009, and he announced, this is not swine flu. This is H1N1. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And he went on to say, <laughs> "We have a, he, he, his message was focused on the pork industry. It wasn't even focused on Americans or Americans' health. He said, we are concerned about the pork industry. We want the, we want the pork workers to know their jobs are safe and that that industry is going to be fine. Mm-hmm. This is not swine flu. It's H1N1. And I right. actually quote him in the book. There's a great quote from him in the book. Um, now, uh, why do I call that a lie? Because two months later, in, in the journal Science, uh, which is a peer-reviewed, prestigious, and published journal. Thirteen scientists from around the world published uh, 
their study on swine flu, and they conclude that swine flu actually does start in pigs, and uh, it's a zoonotic disease, which is to say it starts in, in pigs and spreads to humans. And they go on to say that by ignoring its zoonotic origin, by ignoring the fact that it starts in pigs, we subject ourselves to further risks of similar diseases in the future. Mm-hmm. And when our own government misleads us about where, where a disease comes from and, and how it starts, that's, that's dangerous for us. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> you didn't see the same thing with bird flu. They didn't change the name of bird flu, right? No, I'm sure they would have loved to. And if and if and if it was associated with chickens, yeah, uh, you can be certain flu, they would have changed certain it. They would have changed the name. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com 
and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I mean, what, how did this all begin for you? Like, what got you interested in this world? Well, um, uh, five or six years ago, I sent an email to, uh, I was just, uh, I had just either gone vegan or was about, I was on the path of going vegan. And I sent an email to a bunch of friends asking them what they thought of, of a factory farming video that I included a link to. And I got all sorts of responses, but the one that really intrigued me was from a friend who was the dean of a major law school. He wrote that the imagery that he saw in the video was certainly disturbing and deplorable, but in his view, it was illegal. And that meant that it was exceptional, it was anomalous, it didn't represent a systemic problem, and it didn't, it didn't concern him for that reason. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I mean, you, anyone can take film of illegal activity. That's, that's not the standard. I didn't know how to respond to that because I just didn't know what the law was uh, concerning farm animals. But uh, I started to look into it and what I found shocked me. And that was that in the last several decades in this country, animal food producers have embarked on this very aggressive legislative agenda to um, essentially emasculate all cruelty protections that once applied to farm animals. Um, they've passed ag-gag laws, they've passed what are called cheeseburger laws, they've mm-hmm. passed what are uh, known as food defamation laws. What's a cheeseburger? I mean, I know about the ag-gag laws, and we've talked about that on the podcast before, but what, I've never heard of the cheeseburger laws. Cheeseburger laws. These, we now have these in half of, of, United, of the uh, states in the United States. Um, a cheeseburger law is a law that says a plaintiff cannot recover against a, a manufacturer or retailer of food under the theory that food caused the plaintiff to become obese or to suffer an obesity-related disease. Mm -hmm. So um, on the one hand, you might think, well, that's great. You know, we don't want these crazy lawsuits anyway. Um, People will be out suing McDonald's because they're a few pounds overweight. However, it's important to remember that it is exactly this sort of ability to bring lawsuits which has led to major reform in the tobacco industry. And $400 billion has been extracted from big tobacco in this country in the last few decades and paid to state Medicaid agencies because of the ability to bring lawsuits like this. Mm-hmm. It's also resulted in all sorts of public education and, and new awareness. And we, we've uh, in this country, we've gone from smoking at a rate of about one in two people to about one in five people. Mm-hmm. So we've significantly reduced our smoking in this country. By, by preventing this kind of lawsuit uh, as it applies to food, we are uh, foreclosing our ability um, to, to accomplish the same sort of result down the road when new facts emerge, as they likely will, that show that 
producers are engaged in some sort of um, tortious behavior to, to, to mislead people about food being good for them. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to pivot on the misleading aspect of it, right? I mean, these tobacco lawsuits really pivoted around warning labels, ineffective warning labels, misleading warning labels, or just misleading information about the product in general or failure to warn about the health hazards. So in the, in the context of cheeseburgers or beef or chicken or what have you, um, you know, what is the responsibility of the manufacturer, the producer, to warn, and what would that warning, warning be? You know what I mean? It's a little bit like how do you even how do you approach that? Well, today, it's <clears throat> th- today that question sounds absurd because culturally it's, it's crazy to think that um, a cheeseburger is not good for you or that um, mm. you know, a wedge of cheese is not good for you or that a, a nice, healthy um, chicken breast is not good for you. But, but give that time in 20 or 30 years as, as uh, the medical community, among others, become sort of more receptive to the idea that animal foods might, hey, guess what? They might not be good for us. Mm-hmm. We'll probably change how we look at that. And, and there certainly might be some basis as that evolves to, to look at some of these manufacturers. I mean, look at when in the, in the, the 1950s, cigarette companies promoted ads that said things like uh, smoking uh, Four out of five doctors believe yeah, that like smoke, doctor. <laughs> smoker, smoking uh, is not uh, dangerous. It doesn't cause cancer. There's not, there are no ill uh, health effects associated with smoking. And that's exactly the same kind of uh, clinical literature that, that uh, checkoff-funded research programs are putting out there today. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's likely that as, as medical science catches up with sort of the rest of us in the le- next few decades we'll start looking at, at meat and dairy differently from a health perspective. Right. Well, there's a lot of people that would say, how dare you, David Simon, <laughs> to say that, that you know, there's nothing wrong with a nice chicken breast or, or a piece of salmon, and you're telling me that this is, like, damaging my health. It's anathema. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Well, in, in the last 30 years, hundreds of studies have emerged that, that show fairly conclusively and, and certainly people people differ on this but mm. but the studies uh are you know in the prestigious <clears throat> peer-reviewed journals like the american journal of clinical nutrition new england journal of medicine they say that animal foods cause disease predominantly cancer diabetes and heart disease but also you know a list of others like alzheimer's and parkinson's and mm-hmm. gout arthritis etc yeah, I'm with you, but you know, there's a there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast that come from all different walks of life, and and you know, I think it's just you know, the message to the listener really is just you know, it's incumbent upon you to do your own research. You know, I don't think David or I are here to tell you what you should or shouldn't do, but you know, you really need to take control and responsibility for your own decision making power about what you put on your plate and how you vote with your dollar. So check out some of those. You know, if you were going to direct somebody to something they could read, you know, of course your book, but anything beyond that, what well, are some of the things that have influenced you? Um, T. Colin Campbell's book, The China Study, certainly a great place to start. That's, mm-hmm. that's my sort of foundation for the nutritional uh, perspective on animal foods that I have. But I also, in the book, I cite seven, over 700 endnotes. Um, many of those are studies that are really easy to Google, and, mm-hmm. and you, can, you can read the abstract for free. If you pay a few bucks, you can, you can get the whole study. All right, good. Lots of so that's plenty for people. That'll keep people busy, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, back to the sort of legislative um, landscape, 
the thing that really gets me are these anti-gag laws, you know, and I had Gene Bauer in here from, from Farm Sanctuary, and we were talking about it at length. And, you know, just from a, a First Amendment perspective, and I know, you know, you're interested in First Amendment issues, it's just, it, it amazes me that a law could get passed that would prevent you from <clears throat> speaking out about a certain practice that is occurring in an industry, no matter what the industry is or what the practice is. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And the best thing that I can say about ag-gag laws today is that it seems that they are on the radar of state legislatures now in a way that they weren't a couple of years ago when they when they first started to, to be introduced. So seven states have them now, and 13 states have defeated them. And I and mm-hmm. I, I think that we that maybe we're seeing um, a, a level of visibility and awareness that will result in their being defeated uh, routinely in the future. Well, you never know, especially yeah. in the big farming states like, you know, Iowa, North Carolina, et cetera. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, but you think, you know, we're in California, you know, we, you know, we're all interested in, you know, we're eating sprouts all day, right, out here in crazy California, but we couldn't even get a GMO labeling, uh, you know, initiative uh, passed here. So, I know, <laughs> unbelievable. And I, I live in the county that defeated that by the widest margin. I think it was two to one in my county. Uh-huh. Yeah. Were, you, did, were you involved in any activism around that? Yeah, I mean, I, I did what a lot of my friends did, which is, you know, we went out and uh, signed up uh, uh, voters uh, to, get, to get it on the ballot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also participated in some marches, carrying some signs and stuff like that. I, I actually thought it was a shoo-in. In fact, the, the early polls uh, show that it had a 30% lead over the, over, you know, the nose. But mm-hmm. Do you have, I mean, in your research for the book, do you, did you, you know, what, what are the economics and the marketing tactics behind how Prop 37 you know, sort of transpired. And, and for the listener who might not know what we're talking about or who's new to the show, Prop 37 was a voter initiative. And essentially, it was a, a, a initiative so that food products, food manufacturers would be required to label food products if they contained GMO content, GMO, GMO ingredients, right? Right. And that was it. It's really just a labeling thing. And the Monsantos of the world kind of marshaled their lobbying efforts to defeat this measure based upon arguments that range from it was going to drive up the price of the food or, you know, what were some of the other arguments that were used to? That was the main argument, that it would drive up the price of food. And uh, Monsanto, PepsiCo, some other companies ended up spending something like $50 million to defeat that. Now, I had, I had written that part of my manuscript. This is before the book went, went to the publisher. I had uh-huh. to rewrite it. I had, I had written based on a number of polls uh, that show that consumers want to know about GMO, that there was a widespread uh, preference among consumers in this country for labeling. And, ap- and after the defeat, it wasn't just California. It was some other states mm-hmm. where Monsanto came out in, in strong form and got these measures defeated. I had to, I had to reword that because um, big money um, is capable of, of getting, uh, getting its message across more effectively than, than those without the same resources. Right. And it's amazing because the argument is so weak and it still prevailed. It's like the food, the cost of your food is good. Why? Because of the, you know, the one might, you know, one, I mean, one sort of, you know, 10th of a gram of ink that you're going to have to add to this label or, you know, I don't understand. (laughs) Like where is the cost, you know, where are these hidden costs that are going to drive the price up here? Right. Right. I don't. I, don't I, I think. I think the, the the basis for that argument was was very very shallow. Mm-hmm. 
and and yet you know effective obviously yeah it really works right. people respond to, anytime something's going to cost somebody money people people respond to that oh they're on it right yeah, yeah, yeah. just like that all right so back to um the story you had sent this video out to this um dean of this law school and got this reaction about well that's fine but that's illegal and and i take it your research sort of led you down this path where you started to realize actually these things aren't illegal this is like common practice in many states it's it's common in every state today in this country and in virtually every province in canada and and really every in every western country where animals are raised in industrial conditions that that farm animals essentially have no protection whatsoever from cruelty the way these statutes are worded, and in states that don't have the statute, it's uh, typically based on, on judicial decision-making that, that is known as the common law. If something is generally accepted as an agricultural practice, that is, if a, if a number of farmers in the community are doing this, mm-hmm. then, by definition, it's not cruel. So what, what these are called, the generic term for these is customary farming exemptions, or CFEs. What these customary farming exemptions do is they essentially take from state legislatures the authority to decide what constitutes animal cruelty, and they turn over that authority to the, to the farmers who are raising the animals themselves. That's, that's, the analogy is that is like letting nursing home operators decide what constitutes elder abuse. And you can imagine that if, if that decision were up to the operators of nursing homes, all of a sudden we... We, almost nothing right. would would be defined as elder abuse. Of course. Yeah. So how did it? I mean, is that how did the, the law end up that way? Um, at the at the at the legislative level, it was through um, lobbying, and at the judicial level, I assume that it was through sort of economic arguments. The the common law historically has only protected animals as economic units. Has not protected mm-hmm. them as beings that have rights, uh, and has n- never recognized that they have the right to be free from cruelty. So, when the law looks at an animal as an economic unit, much as you know your laptop or your car, if if something, uh, if if the owner of that economic unit can make an argument that it's economically beneficial to to treat that animal in a particular way, then judges respond and say, okay, yeah, that's that's right. fine. So you know, for example. It's legal in every state to to castrate an animal without without anesthetizing him. That would cost about twenty five cents, which might seem like nothing. But if if you're uh, a rancher and you raise a hundred thousand animals a year, that works out to twenty five thousand dollars, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of money. So um, economically speaking, it's not something you're going to do, and the law will support you on that. The law will say, yeah, you don't. You're entitled to run your business uh, to make a profit. Mm-hmm. And so, and so this is kind of the impetus for you adopting a vegan diet initially, right? It was, it was sort of this, this ethical argument, learning more about these inhumane practices. For me, that was what did it, yeah. Right. And, uh, and, and, and this was 2008? 2000? Yeah, 2008. 2008. And, uh, but you've also experienced some health benefits from this yes i did yeah and, and i didn't even i didn't even go into it with that in mind but um when i went vegan i had a body mass index of about 25 which uh, put me right at the at the at the threshold between um, a healthy weight and being overweight mm-hmm. i had high cholesterol uh i had GERD or acid reflux and all those 
my weight dropped 17 pounds. My cholesterol went from 200 to 140. And mm. uh, I haven't had a problem with acid reflux wow. ever since. Were you on statins before? No. Uh, in fact, this is a weird irony. My doctor put me on the Atkins diet for, oh, my, yeah. for my cholesterol. Can you believe that? Wow. And initially, it actually worked because, because well, I can't tell you why because I'm, I'm not a nutritionist. I think it was just because I was paying much more attention to what I was putting in my body than I ever had before. Mm -hmm. uh, and my cholesterol dropped maybe down to 180. But long term, it, it went the other way, and my cholesterol just went back up. It was right around 200, so it wasn't high enough to, to warrant being on a prescription drug. But it, right. was, it was at a level that clinically is right at the threshold. <clears throat> Um, are you familiar with these new statin recommendations that are that are being made? Yeah, you read just, up on this lately. Yeah, I saw that. That's. Uh, I, I mean, this sort of dovetails into your economics argument kind of perfectly, right? It just brings another gigantic organization into this, which is the pharmaceutical industry and their investment and interest in in sort of getting as many people as possible onto this these drugs, right? I mean, am I a crazy conspiracy theorist <laughs> for submitting that? I mean. No, I think you're right. And the, and the medical community supports that too because doctors make more money when people go to visit them and get prescriptions written for them than if they tell people to, to eat a healthier diet and they never see them again. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and, and that's been that we're certainly not the first people to point out those, those strong economic benefits in the, both the medical and the pharmaceutical communities. Yeah, it's amazing. I was. Uh at the supermarket last night, I was at Whole Foods uh, last night picking up a few things, and I ran into this guy um, just shopping for his family. And he's like, oh, I listen to the podcast. I, you know, like I, I, somebody had told me about you, and you know, I tuned in, and I've gone plant-based, and, and I got off my statins. And like my doctor couldn't believe, you know, couldn't believe it. And he just said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. But it was completely unfamiliar territory to this doctor. Like, oh, what? Like this diet change is actually, you know, manage to reduce your reduce these numbers so that you're off this drug you know it seems like it should be the first thing that uh that should be explored but but it's the it's a sort of knee-jerk you know let's let's write the prescription yeah it really does in fact i have to admit when people tell me that that um a, a relative or a friend has cancer i often ask and did their doctor recommend any diet change as part of their treatment and usually the answer is no and it mm -hmm. always stuns me like really i mean wouldn't you think about about eating less red meat at least you know now you're getting <laughs> radical i mean forget meatonomics yeah. you know now you're out of control yeah i know i know well so how do, i mean how did we get you know what is the history of the farm subsidies and how did this all come to pass and you know how do we get to this terrible crisis point that we're in now well, farm subsidies grew out of the New Deal and FDR's um, desire to stabilize the, the farm industry. We also had, had uh, some, some dust bowl issues in, in the 30s that resulted in major uh, problems for most farmers in this country. Originally, the idea was not subsidies, but, but um, supply management. Supply management is a technique where you hold goods back uh, in order to keep prices steady, and then uh, you allow those goods onto the market at a, at a time when, when uh, prices have gone up, and so you're, you sort of control both supply and price in a healthy way. 
And we practiced that in this country substantially for a long time, right up through about the time that Reagan was in office. Mm-hmm. Um, some people might remember uh, government cheese. Reagan, Reagan is sort of remembered for, for uh, giving out these huge orange blocks of cheddar cheese. I remember that. Yeah. Um, I didn't get one, but I know some people <laughs> who did. <laughs> and there was sort of a push during the Reagan administration to do away with supply management. It was seen as sort of uh, too much government involvement and uh, we should let the market run itself. Uh, unfortunately, the, this particular market doesn't do well running itself. People just don't have the right incentives. What happens is when, when prices of agricultural goods drop a bit, rather than dialing back production, which would be a good way to, to allow those prices to, to move back up, farmers actually respond by increasing production. So it creates this vicious cycle where um, the prices go, go lower, why, and lower, why do they, and lower. Why do they increase production? Well, because it's sort of every person for him or herself, and that's just the way we think. So if you're, if you're running a farm and you see your revenue go down slightly, you respond to that you're by thinking— sell more. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to produce a few more units in order to increase my revenue. Mm-hmm. But it works the other way around, and with, with everybody responding in the same way, it drives the prices down across the board. That is one of the main reasons why the government has had to step in with all sorts of uh, subsidy programs. And and these programs are so complicated. Most people have never even heard of the names. You know, they have things like cyclical crop insurance and milk loss contracts mm. and irrigation subsidies. I mean, they have these, these technical and lengthy names, and, but they work out to these huge amounts of money and in ways and in places that we never had any idea. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> so, but I mean, over the years we've gotten to this, you know, it seems like the volume just continues to get turned up. I mean, is how does this evolve into this behemoth that we now have that is sort of unmanageable and, you know, seems impossible to alter? Uh, we, so every four to five years, Congress passes a farm bill. Uh, I think this might be, we might be in a stage where it's six years this time because this particular farm bill is taking forever. But, you know, it averages about five years and that farm bill routinely includes these massive subsidies. And because there is so much other stuff in the Farm Bill, most significantly including food stamp allocations, uh, what's now called SNAP, or the uh, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. Mm -hmm. Because all these other programs have been worked into the Farm Bill, there's a little something for everyone. There's there's log rolling. There's kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so if if you're from a a state where uh, you want to make sure you get your food stamp benefits for your people, You've got to agree to the subsidies that are going to the people in the farming states. These everybody hates them. I mean, routinely, one of the points I make mm-hmm. in the book is that you try to find some some commentator saying something good about subsidies. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Everybody on both, you know, Democrats, Republicans, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, everybody across the board says they're terrible. And yet, for some reason, every time a farm bill passes, they're there again. Another, mm-hmm. you know, dozens of billions of dollars. I mean, if tomorrow all the farm subsidies went away, would it would our economy collapse, or would it self adjust quickly? I mean, how uh, what would happen? I, I think it would. I think you would get different opinions on that yeah. from people in the in the farm industry, but I think it would adjust pretty quickly. I think prices of of goods would go up a little bit, not significantly. 
you know, I, sh I, sh I show some math in the book that suggests that the prices of animal foods might go up by three or four cents on the dollar. Um, nothing to, to prevent people from continuing to buy at the levels that they do now. And uh, we would just have uh, uh, significantly lower tax burden. Mm -hmm. Right. So the example you use in the book is <clears throat> if you're buying a McDonald's hamburger or a Big Mac, right, it's four bucks. It's about four bucks. It's been a while. For it's me. actually, a more, <laughs> I think it's more like five now. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's gone up. On average. Subsidies are not effective. Yeah, well, they are, they are to some extent. <laughs> yeah. So that's your internalized cost, right? You buy your Big Mac, five bucks, let's say five bucks. Yeah. Um, but when you tack on the externalized cost, it was somewhere more like $11, right? Yeah, more actually like 13. The true cost of what it takes to create this product for you. That's right. So every time McDonald's sells a $5 Big Mac, if it's $5, which I think is a fair average, mm -hmm. About eight dollars of costs are externalized on top of that, so that 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 Big Mac ends up costing society something like thirteen dollars. Right. How does that break down? Like, how do those externalized costs get allocated across the board? The majority of them are healthcare related, mm -hmm. uh, and the again controversial, but the clinical literature that shows that that animal foods are responsible for some portion of of clinical cases of cancer, diabetes, and heart disease suggests that, that, that animal foods might be driving about a third of those cases. So uh, what I have done is come up with a number in the book that takes our total cost to treat those cases in this country and, and allocates the portion attributable to consuming the high levels of animal foods that we do. And, and right. So of that $8, probably... Uh, Six dollars would be um, healthcare costs. Probably a little under a dollar would be subsidies. A little mm -hmm. under a dollar would be environmental costs, and the remaining pocket change would be uh, associated with cruelty and uh, fishing, which is not applicable to a Big Mac, but it just is an average number. Right. Yeah, I mean it's 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 fascinating to look at those statistics, um, but then I think about human behavior and it's sort of like well that's that's fascinating but my big mac's still five bucks you know like is that going to modify any kind of personal choice or behavior patterns and and how do you get people to think differently about these products and and modify their behavior their choices well that's where i think uh, institutional change comes in mm -hmm. and i recommend an institutional change in the book that would uh give people better incentives and allow them to make make choices about foods that they buy that, that are more reflective of the economic realities. Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to, you have to, to win the game, you got to play the game and you have to create a profit motive somewhere along this chain where somebody is significantly incentivized to implement the kind of changes that are going to eventually radicalize this system. I mean, and it seems to me that the best way to do that is to go to all these CEOs of these huge companies and go, look at how much you're spending on healthcare. Like if you could just get your employee force healthier, you're going to reduce, you know, those costs substantially and you're net revenues, your annual net revenues are going to be increased without you doing very, it's not going to cost you very much, but implementing kind of 
programs, like I know PCRM has done that. They did it. They had a really successful one with Geico. Um, that just seems to me to be like a no brainer. I think it's a great idea. Why, why can't, um, health, health insurance companies provide a discount for people in a plant-based diet? Well, now why would they do that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me rephrase yeah, it. Yeah. What, what, how about this? Cause the CEO of the healthcare company goes golfing with the, with the guy from the USDA, right? Right. Come well, on. we, we know that if, for example, if, if you apply for life insurance, if you smoke, your premium is going to be higher, right? right? So, so we know that the, that the insurance companies are at least aware of some of these risk factors. One way to approach this might be to say, look, if you get your cholesterol checked every year and it is always below X, name a number, 160, you're entitled to a 10% discount on your health insurance. Uh-huh. I like it. It's, it's objective, and it doesn't even refer to, it, to what your diet is. It just says right. that if, for whatever reason, your, your blood cholesterol level is below this threshold, mm-hmm. we think you're going to be less at risk for de- disease. And by the way, clinically, that's completely supported. And as a result, we're going to pay less in doctor visits on your behalf, so we're going to charge you a lower premium. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. David Simon, you're in the healthcare industry. Come on, let's make this happen. How do we make this happen? Well, I wish it were that easy. I know, I know that people have proposed this before. In fact, I've, I've written some, some emails uh, to, some, to some health insurers in the past. Uh, I, I think it's coming. I mean, I really do. That's, yeah. I, it's just a matter of time and acceptance in the medical community. Right. I interviewed uh, this woman, Deborah Zake, who's sort of, she's like the godmother of wellness. She, uh, she uh, is the founder and proprietor of a place called Rancho La Puerta that's over the border in Tecate, like in Mexico. It's like the first wellness resort in the country. And like her legacy in wellness goes back to like the early 30s. She's an incredible woman who's now like 91. And she held um, a government post in D.C. for 17 years and is like, a, you know, she's rubbed elbows with all the presidents and all this kind of stuff. And her big idea, which I think is kind of brilliant, is uh, – 
listen, you got to create your own lobbying group that is just as powerful as these other lobbying groups. And the only way to do that, it's like the kale lobby isn't going to do it, right? The broccoli lobby. Like you've got to get all these fractured groups that are all kind of on the same page in terms of wellness, health, nutrition, these various subject matters, and get them to all agree, at least on the bigger picture, and pool their resources so that you can go to Washington and you can butt up against you know, the Monsantos or whatever. But until you get to that place, how are you ever going to have a center of gravity with enough you know, sort of heft and magnitude to get anything done, at least in the current system? Yeah, right? no, that's a very good point. So that's how do we do that? Point. <laughs> well, there are groups that are working yeah. on it. You know, um, Humane Society of the United States, or HSUS, They're has huge. been huge, big budget, over $300 million a year, mm-hmm. and they are very effective. They're, they're certainly the most effective advocacy group at the legislative level for uh, animal-related issues. And it's different from the kale lobby. You know, they, right. the, the agendas don't always match up. But I would say that they're, that they're uh, getting a lot done. You know, they've been the, – the current farm bill – uh, has has a rider attached, which would essentially eliminate state level protections from animal cruelty, and HSUS has been very vocal in in um, opposing that that version of the farm bill. And if it weren't for them, who knows? Uh, that thing might be passed already. Right. I mean, there's some there are some good things in this farm bill, are there not? I'm not intimately familiar with what's, what's uh, in there. I got to tell you, it's, it's, changed, it's changed so Keep much that, that, that I can't even stay on top of it. Uh-huh. I, I, I'll, the main thing on my radar at the moment is this rider related to, um, which would essentially eliminate Prop 2 in California. And for those who don't know, Prop 2 uh, is the most important um, animal welfare legislation in this country uh, in the last hundred years be, because it... It, it mandates that animals have to have the space to turn around and to live in, in some moderate degree of comfort. The, the, current, the current language that has been attached to the Farm Bill would, would essentially uh, eviscerate Prop 2 and make it go away. So it, it would literally make the conditions much worse. Like the penned-up condi- conditions of these animals, they, st- they wouldn't even be able to move, it, move enough That's to right. turn around. That's right. I mean, a, 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 a sow, a uh, female pig, mother pig, spends her life in a gestation crate uh, in which she's unable to turn around, unable to even reach or touch her piglets. And Prop 2 would change that, but, but if Prop 2 doesn't take effect as planned in 2015, it's going to be status mm. quo. So, wait, so I don't, I'm not familiar with So Prop 2 passed, but it doesn't go into effect for another year? It passed a few years ago, and uh, it was given an effective date of January 1, 2015. I see. So it's, it hasn't gone into effect yet, but... But the 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 big animal food um, producers are doing everything in their power to get it uh, in, sort of eliminated before it ever takes effect. Right, and the rationalization to eliminate it would be what they can just pack more animals into a more cramped space. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the legal rationalization that is being used at the legislative level is that the the commerce clause requires that states uh, don't burden each other, and so if California says you know animals have to be raised in a certain way, that affects suppliers in North Carolina who might you know otherwise not be able to ship their product to us. But the economic rationale is just as you state that it's much it's much more cost effective if you're a producer to raise animals in the in the closest space possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's how that's how you maximize your profits. Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. 
uh, back to the the sort of through line narrative of you sending this video to the dean of this law school and, and being very interested in this this issue. I mean, where do how does that transform into you being you know so interested in the economics behind how these industries work that would compel you to write a book about it? Okay, so um, as I as I sort of dug deeper and found this this legal framework that surrounds the factory farming industry. It was not it was ag gag laws. It was the cheeseburger laws that we talked about. It was these customary farming exemptions, uh, eco terrorism laws. Uh, it was just this this a framework is really the best way to describe it. it it's a cocoon that 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 surrounds meat and dairy producers and and it provides them with. Uh, very significant economic benefits because because it is these laws that allow them to to externalize their costs. Mm-hmm. These laws provide the, the legal um, basis for them to shift their cost to society. To the consumer. Once I sort of keyed in on that, I thought, well, um, there is some literature out there which talks about the costs associated with you know manure remediation, for example, or the costs associated with climate change remediation. And, I, and no one has ever added up all these numbers as they apply to factory farming. So maybe I should do that and see what the number comes out to. And it came out to a pretty big number. So right. I thought there's, uh, there's a book there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so how does that – so you just start writing it? Or how does this – like I'm interested – just as a fellow writer, like I'm yeah. always interested in the story of how a book is birthed. Well, let's see. I, um, I, I, I First I – I wrote a proposal, and then I got an agent. Uh-huh. I don't know how how you it's the textbook way of doing it. Yeah, no, that's and, well, uh, yeah. Well, I got I got the interest of an agent first, who then said you need to write a proposal because I didn't know anything. Okay, <laughs> so but you knew enough to write a proposal first. I actually talked to another writer who had written a book in this genre, uh, Melanie Joy, who wrote uh-huh. a book called Why We Love Dogs, and uh, she she advised me. She told me how to do it. Right. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have had any idea. So yeah, I wrote a proposal. I I, sh- I sent it out to a few agents. I got I got very fortunate to get an agent I really liked um, at a at a New York agency. She she made all kinds of recommendations to change the proposal, as I'm sure you've mm-hmm. gone through too. And uh, it, what emerged was sort of the outline for the book. And once once a publisher accepted it, then I just sort of fleshed in the the missing parts of the outline. Right. And when did you, when did it came out? How long, how many, like it four came or five out months just ago? Just in September. Four, okay. Yeah. So just in September. So how has it been? You've been on the road doing the book been tour Traveling, thing? doing the book tour, uh-huh. mostly East Coast, some, some California stops as well. Uh, the book has been uh, about a half a dozen publications have reviewed it, all favorable. And that's been nice. Um, some of them are bigger names than others, but the Huffington Post is a big one that said, uh, Anyone interested in, in the politics of food should have this book. Right. Veg News said it was riveting, you know, uh-huh. some other good stuff like good. that. Good. Has Mark Bittman read it? Uh, not yet, but uh, I, I, think it's on, I think it's on his desk or on its way you to should. it. <laughs> Probably with a lot of other books. <laughs> yeah, but I uh, think he's got some Everyone wants him to read the book. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I just think that you, like I see a future in you, you know, getting up in front of large audiences, whether it's at business schools or universities, uh, to speak this message because it's really important. 
um, you know, forget about vegan, whatever. It's just we need to be educated about what's really going on with the business of food, whatever your preferences are, and to understand the economics behind how food arrives on your plate and who is really profiting and the messages that they want you to know and the messages that they don't want you to know so that everybody can make a more informed choice. And the economics aspect of it, I mean, you're the first one to really kind of delve into that, do a deep dive on that. I would think like you should be on the college tour. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've uh, spoken to a few academic uh, institutions and people about, about the possibility mm-hmm. of doing that as well. Yeah. It, I think it's, I think the book is just sort of getting out of the radar and as it, as it, as it in, evolves and, in, and increases in visibility, uh, you know, I'll be doing some more of that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, but, but you're still full-time job, general counsel for a healthcare company. Yeah. You want to keep doing that? Are you going to be? You want to be a full-time uh, vegan wellness wellness animal rights well, a- I, advocate? Um, I I prefer the latter. It just doesn't pay uh-huh. as well as the you problem. Know, no, it doesn't. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the general counsel gig, yeah, I think is probably a little bit more secure. Yeah, but, and it, it's not, and I can't complain. It's actually a good job. I I don't have to work nights and weekends the way a lot of lawyers do, so uh-huh. I don't I don't have that headache. Did you uh, start and did you did you ever work in big law firms? When I, when I first started practicing, I worked in downtown LA at a at a at a pretty big firm for a few years. Uh-huh. Uh, so I've got that on my belt. Which uh, one you want to say? You don't want to say? I can say it's it's uh, Nossim and Gothner, Knox and Elliott, uh-huh. about a hundred lawyers. And you're a litigator. I I, I was <clears throat> a transactional lawyer, <clears throat> uh, and I I continue to be predominantly transactional, although I do a little bit of litigation today. Right. Yeah. The big law firm life wasn't for me. Uh, so I guess. <laughs> I know. It's not for many but, uh, people. You know, the, the only thing is if you stick around long enough and make partner, then, you know, you make so much money that you're, you got the golden handcuffs. But for most people, it's, it's hard to. Uh, emphasis on handcuffs. Yeah. I don't know. For me, like, I just, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, did, I looked around at the partners and maybe, you know, listen, if you're wired for that and it makes you happy, that's great. You know, more power to you. But. I just I saw a lot of unhappiness. I saw a lot of money being made, but I, I saw a lot of unhappiness. Maybe I was just seeing my own unhappiness, but you know, I don't know. Right. Um, but uh, that's cool. Well, I mean, I, I hope that you can find a way to continue to, um, you know, sort of spread the word. Yeah, thanks. You can't be distracted by your general counsel. Job. Yeah, I know. It's a job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's cool. So, where's are you? Are you have any any speaking gigs coming up, or any places where people might be able to gather to hear you give your talk? Well, uh, on Tuesday, the twenty sixth, I'm actually giving a book talk in Costa Mesa at uh, a market called the People's oh, cool. Seed S E E D Market uh-huh. um, at Bristol and Baker in Costa Mesa, and that's information on that is on my website meatonomics.com. Mm-hmm. The the next big thing I'm doing is uh, I'm doing some other stuff that's not on the that's not fully planned yet. But uh, I've been invited to talk at uh, Dr. Uh, McDougall's uh, Advanced uh, Wellness Program, which oh, is in Santa great. Rosa. Fantastic. Where Colin Campbell will be there. Michael mm-hmm. Gregor, um, some other big names. That's great. Have um, you met so, uh, Michael Gregor yet? I have. Yeah, he's yeah, great. He's, he's, he's he, I saw he was on your podcast. He was. Fact, yeah. He was 007. I love that. Oh yeah. Did you, did you he notice that? No, <laughs> I didn't. Great. You know. Yeah. He's he's my favorite. I love that He's guy. Great. And then I did another podcast with him. Uh, we were both at Summerfest in Pennsylvania, which okay. was another like event. And uh, and my freaking computer blew up in the middle of it, and I lost that. I oh, lost the file. Fi- like, my, or no, what happened? I dropped my hard drive like that night or whatever, and lost the file. So 
tragic. That's but he's he's yeah, I love that guy. So that'll be good. That's great. Yeah. Oh, and Caldwell Esselstyn will be there too. So yeah, oh, these cool. big names in nutrition. The who, big. I have not met people. those guys. I've just met uh, Dr. Gregor. The grand poobahs of yeah. the plant-based yeah. movement. Yeah. <clears throat> Very cool. Well, good. Well, thanks for uh, dropping by the podcast today. I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, you're an inspiration. Your message is powerful. And uh, people, go out and get this book, Metanomics. You can get it everywhere, right? Amazon, yeah. Barnes & Noble, yeah. all those places. That's right. So the best way to do that, though, is to go to richworld.com and use the Amazon banner ad and then buy it on Amazon. And that helps support the podcast. But you should go to Metanomics. Is it .com or .org? .com. .com. Um, you've got some really interesting blog posts up there that are related to the book um, and more information about David. And, uh, yeah, man, what else? Where else can be? You're on you're, uh, you're Metanomics on Twitter. Yeah, that's and right. Anywhere else people... Facebook, facebook.com slash metanomics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also on Facebook as uh, Dave Simon. You'll find me there. Cool. Yeah. Are you going to write another book? Uh, yeah, but probably not one with 700 endnotes. The, the yeah. research killed me on this. How long did it, it take you to, to write it? It took me almost four years. Wow. Yeah. That's a big, that's, that's a big one. A long time. So you need a, you're, you're in your gestation period now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you got to recoil and regroup. Yeah, I know the feeling. Exactly. So. Well, good, man. Uh, I appreciate you coming by. I appreciate the message. So thanks, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right. It. Peace. You too. Plants. That's it, people. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed David. He was awesome. Definitely check out his book. Uh, If you want to support the podcast mission, the Plant Power Revolution, here's what you do. First of all, sign up for my newsletter at richroll.com. And if you're going to buy anything on Amazon, holidays are coming up. You got to pick up a gift or two. uh, Click on the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. Won't cost you anything, nothing, zero but they'll kick us a few extra bucks, and we appreciate that. You can donate to the podcast, a buck here or two. You can do it weekly. You can do it monthly. The amount of your choice. The podcast will always be free, though. So we appreciate the support. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. That's it. If you're really inspired, leave us a comment on the iTunes page. The comments there help us a lot, and we appreciate that. Um, What else? Uh, We got some products at richroll.com. We got our digital e-cookbook, GIC, 77 pages of awesome plant-based recipes. We have our meditation program, guided meditation, series of MP3s. We have our plant-based recovery formula, GI Repair. I got a vitamin B12 supplement, GI B12. We got a lot more stuff coming. I'm going to get the T-shirts up in time for the holidays, for gifts. And speaking of gifts, uh, maybe you want to help a loved one learn more about eating a plant-based diet. We have our online course at MindBodyGreen, mindbodygreen.com. Three and a half hours of streaming video content, an online community, all kinds of good stuff. Really proud of this online uh, program, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Uh, Check that out if you haven't already, and uh, you can gift that to a friend, too. makes for a great holiday gift to reboot for the new year, so you can go into January energized, pumped, psyched to unlock and unleash your best, most authentic self. That's it, people. If you're in America, have a great Thanksgiving. I'll catch up with you the following week, and for everybody else out there, thanks for listening. We love you guys. Peace. (laughs) 